Welcome to Your Rights to Work. I'm Chris Garlick. Ed Smith is away this week. Hey, if you've got questions about your workplace rights, the ones you've got, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had, give us a call, 202-588-0893, 202-588-0893, if you've got questions about your rights at work, or if you just want to join the conversation, which is going to be really interesting, your Rights at Work is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. That's more than 150 Labor Radio podcast shows just like this. You can check them all out, laborradionetwork.org. All right. On today's show, Monday is Memorial Day, and Will Attig, Executive Director at the AFL-CIO's Union Veterans Council. He's going to join us to talk about what that means for our nation's more than 1 million union vets. Then on May 30th, uh, 1937, striking workers in Chicago were shot down by police. It's known as the Memorial Day Massacre, and it transformed the course of labor rights in the U.S. Ahmed White, professor of law at the University of Colorado Boulder and the author of The Last Great Strike, Little Steel, the CIO, and his struggle for labor rights in New Deal America will be joining us for that discussion in just a few minutes. We're going to have some music from the one-man revolution himself, Tom Morello. And then in our final segment, we'll talk with Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large at the American Prospect, about the return of law and order to labor relations. That's all coming up this hour on Your Rights at Work. Now, our first guest today, as promised, is Will Attig. He's executive director at the AFL-CIO's Union Veterans Council. Welcome back to Your Rights at Work, Will. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's uh, always great to be on. It's great for what uh, you and all the other labor communicators are doing with these podcasts and radio shows across the country telling the story of, of labor today, which is, is really exciting times for, for, for a lot of us. Well, you're a, you're a big star with the network. I know you've been on a bunch of different shows across the network, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on uh, to talk about uh, all the issues uh, facing veterans. But, you know, Will, just before the show, you texted me some photos of uh, what you were doing exactly one year ago, and I thought, hey, let's start out by uh, talking about what, what, you, what, what were you doing a year ago today? Oh, man, you know, um, well, uh, I was uh, in the uh, uh, – Alabama, rural Alabama, with a whole bunch of mine workers. And, and to put this into a little bit of context, uh, a year ago, uh, the Warrior Met Mine Workers, I think a lot of people on your show have probably heard about them. It's about 1,000 mine workers that have been uh, on strike uh, right now for well over a year. Um, a, a company, a, a Warrior Met Coal, had, had pretty much stolen about a billion dollars from this community, not just the workers at the coal mine that had a contract, um, they, they, they stole from the entire community and a, an entire community be, was, was hurt and, and their opportunity for the American dream was stolen by this company. And these workers decided to take a stand and go on strike. And I was happy, you know, kind of in one of those early moments in, in, in the strike where, you know, you need to make sure which way you're going or not. Uh, myself and, and President Cecil, Cecil Roberts traveled down there and along with quite a few other uh, union veterans and, and uh, mine workers, um, we walked on a mine, 
and uh, you know we we decided to shut it down and and there was a group of us that took a couple steps too far and and uh, all in all we wound up spending 12 hours in custody in tuscaloosa county jail um, in alabama <laughs> it wasn't a very fun experience i'll tell you that this was you know this was something that was a very personal on a real a real real arrest that we didn't know how it was going to go and and i think that me and Cecil are about to come off pro probation we got we got a few months probation from this um, but we were facing real jail time but it was worth doing that to go down there and fight with those workers that, that just wanted to stand up and have a stand in their own economic future and, and to me I, I saw americans willing to fight for themselves and, and i went down to help fight with them well well i mean you know you're a vet yourself served in iraq and you're, you're really i mean people can't see it but you're a clean-cut gentleman you know i mean you really you look like the all-american you know probably quarterback on your football team you know uh you know guys like me and cecil god I, cecil probably doesn't can't even count on his fingers and toes how many times that man's being arrested right i mean you know he, he's been to jail for justice a few times so but so it's a big step for a guy like you to, to you know get, to get out there and, and take an arrest, right? I, I, yeah, it, it is. But I, I think that it it, it it goes along with who I am. I think um, uh, when I was 18 years old, I decided to go fight for my country. Um, I went and served a lot of really amazing people, and we 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 fought together in in two wars that you know there's a lot of opinions about. Um, but what I what the things I don't have an opinion about is is what how we banded together and worked together as a group of people young really young people over in a really really tough situation and and you know when i came back i really believed that you know i was trying to do something right and what i found now that i became a leader in the labor movement is that i'm doing more good here in the united states um fighting for workers in our communities than i ever did in a desert in the middle east and the first time i decided to get arrested was during the government shutdown when almost a million veterans were being forced laid off were missing paychecks were facing stress and anxiety and i got arrested in 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 the capital and i remember doing that and and someone came up to me asked me i said you know it looked personal to you and it, it was because it was one of my first arrests um my first arrest for justice and you know it, it did mean something i've had the honor of also getting arrested with the congressional black caucus um early on in the voter rights fights last year I'm along with Clayola Brown, um, and that was kind of an impromptu one. But I believe that if I have an ability to use this blonde-haired, blue-eyed face that has so much privilege in this world, that, to send a message that shocks the people, where that you don't realize it and you don't think about it when a veteran starts talking about civil rights and talking about Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, um, sometimes that just that's enough to crack an ear to make people really understand. And again, it, to me, it, it's just fighting for my community. Just fighting for that community. I love it. Will Attic, he's executive director at the AFL-CIO's Union Veterans Council. You're listening to your rights to work. This is a call-in show. And Michael tells me we the phones are lighting up. We've got a call. Uh, Michael, let's see who's on the line. And uh, go ahead. What's your name? Where are you calling uh, from? The caller dropped, Chris. Oh, well, apparently they dropped, but that's okay. 202-588-0893 if you want to call back or if you want to join this conversation with will now will besides just being the kind of guy who just stands up for what's right and, and gets arrested if necessary there's actually a, a veterans connection specifically uh to the warrior med strike tell us a little bit about that well you know with that strike alone um i think that when we when we when we found out out of the thousand workers there there was over 150 veterans 
that were workers that are on strike. Um, and I think that that was one of the big things that made that connection in that, in that strike. Um, and that, that's really what the Union Veterans Council does. What we try to do is, is, is give a voice for just regular veterans. We're not the, the, the bro style veterans you, you hear about, you know, the black rifle coffee folks wearing your combat infantry shirts, whatever it is. You know, we believe in the socioeconomics of America, and we believe that when veterans come home, they're just regular folks, but they've also gone through a lot of stuff, and they need a little bit of extra help. Um, and that's why, you know, the Union Veterans Council is here to help support the over a million, you know, veterans that are here, um, that are in unions across the country. And, you know, what I'm really lucky to do is to, to be part of an organization that has a really large base of politically active veterans that are working to continue to like serve the country. Um, you know, over the last couple of days, I can't tell you how many um, emails and messages I've got from veterans all over the country about what happened in Texas. And, right. you know, we need to think about uh, what we're doing here. Um, and I think that, you know, I, 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 it's hard to even talk about this. I've got a young kid. Um, but what, what, I, what I know is that we have uh, an incredibly broken system. We have we have got almost a fetishization of guns and firearms culture, especially after my war started. Uh, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of coalitions between these, these firearm sales. Um, but as a country, we have got to start doing something. We can't, we can't just talk about it. And it's just like, and we're, we're doing it again here on this radio show, talking about something that happened this week that's devastating. And, but, but as a veteran, you know, nobody should have to fear facing down guns like that in their own communities here in America, 100%. I'm really glad you brought that up. I was actually looking for a way to, to raise this. We obviously talked about this you know, recently around the Buffalo shootings, and I didn't realize we were going to have to talk about it again so soon. Yeah. But since you raised it, and I want to bring our, our, our other guest in shortly, but, but since you raised it as somebody who, unlike me, who, you know, I'm not a pacifist, but I'm not sure which end of the gun is which, uh, you're certainly, you know, comfortable with firearms. Um, but I was, I was doing some reading on this and talking to a friend of mine who's, you know, from Great Britain, you know, and, and, and he was talking about how in Great Britain and Australia, it's not like those societies are, are less violent than we are or have less mental illness than, than we do, but they have nowhere near the kinds of, of shootings that we have. And it seems, as far as I can tell, to be directly connected with the ability to, you know, th this kid in Texas turned 18, went out, bought a couple of guns. As far as I can tell, it didn't even have any training. Apparently, you don't even, I mean, you must have learned how to use a gun when you went, but apparently you don't really need that these days. Yeah, I, I think that the, the the conversation around this is one of those ones that it's, we're, 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 it's like we're throwing grenades at each other and it just tossing it back and forth sometimes. Um, the, 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 the radical folks on the right, they want to talk about, you know, the, the minute that you want to bring up anything, they just want to break things down, the conversation down. But when you talk about that coalition of, of these mass shootings and the increase in firearm deaths, whether it's suicide, accidents, um, murder rates by suicide, since the 1990s, there's been a massive influx in, um, Gun um, gun rights bills, um, where it lowered the uh, uh, easier, made it easier to to, to 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 buy firearms. At the same time, there's been a massive influx in the sales of semi-automatic weapons, pistols mm -hmm. especially, and then combat-styled weapons, 
combat style weapons, the right ones to say, oh, you don't even know what AR is, whatever. A combat style weapon is a weapon that has specific kinds of calibers. It can release magazines quickly. It can high, have high capacity mag magazines. These are the things that create these massive casualty rates. Um, the coalitions are there. There's no way you can get around it. And as someone who, who owns a firearm and, and, and believes in being able to go out and maybe shoot at a target once in a while, you know, there is no need to have guns like that. There's, and there's definitely no need for an 18-year-old kid to be able to walk into a store, get a gun that's more powerful than the one I had in Iraq, and do what he did. It, it, we've, got to, we've got to do something about it. You mentioned something in passing, which I, I may have heard, but if I did, I'd forgotten. But, you know, everybody focuses on these horrible, tragic, multi, you know, uh, multi-victim shootings. But in fact, and I know you know this as a vet, most gun deaths are suicides, like like a huge, huge number of them. So I want to come back and talk about that. But I do want to welcome and add to the conversation uh, our next guest, and this goes back to what I talked about at the top, which is 85 years ago, actually, on May 30th, 1937, uh, striking workers in Chicago were shot down. So we, we can't get away from the gun issue, Will. I guess it's oh, no. for today. Uh, shot down by police. Ten died. More than 100 were injured. It's known as the Memorial Day Massacre transformed the course of labor rights in the U.S. And uh, I saw a great article on this in Jacobin, actually from back in 1917. The author is Ahmed White. He's professor of law at the University of uh, Colorado Boulder. He's the author of The Last Great Strike, Little Steel, the CIO, and the Struggle for Labor Rights in New Deal America. Professor Wright, welcome to your rights of work. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your being here. And I just, uh, uh, Will Adig is the uh, uh, executive director of uh, the Union Veterans Council. So I, I actually kind of thought, I, I don't know why, but in my mind, this pairing works. So, well, bear with me. <laughs> uh, give us some, uh, Will was just talking about being arrested a year ago uh, with the mine workers strike. Uh, let's take us back uh, 85 years. This was a strike by steel workers uh, in the Chicago area. Can you just give us a little background on that? Yeah, so this was a strike that began uh, more or less May 26th, uh, 1937. What made it hugely important uh, is when it happened. So 1935, the National Labor Relations Act is passed. Uh, the general reaction of most employers was to resist it or ignore it. Uh, and so for the better part of two years, there was a stalemate in the face of an increasingly active campaign spearheaded by the CIO to organize industrial workers in industries like um, automobiles, rubber, glass. Uh, many of us are aware of the, uh, the big sit-down strike at uh, Flint, Michigan in the winter of 36 uh, and 37. Uh, and there were plenty of sit-down strikes then. These were a response to the intransigence of these employers. That who said, we're, we're just going to ignore the statute. We're not going to recognize your unions. We're going to continue to persecute people who organize. Um, what happened uh, in early 1937 is that GM, uh, in uh, response to the sit-down strikes, primarily gave in uh, and recognized, at least gave limited recognition to the United Auto Workers, CIO. Uh, Chrysler followed a few weeks later. Uh, a number of other companies came around, uh, among them U.S. Steel, which with GM was the biggest company in the world. 
uh, back then. Uh, and partly because they probably feared a sit-down strike uh, at their plant. Well, what that did was set up a situation where the many opponents of the New Deal uh, figured they had to make a stand. Uh, they had to stop the CIO from, from racking up um, these victories. Uh, and their situation was all the more critical because in April 1937, in the midst of all of these things, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the National Labor Relations Act. This was huge, landmark decision called NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin Steel. So these, uh, these remaining opponents of the New Deal who were being bankrolled uh, by uh, the DuPonts, uh, by something called the American Liberty League, which had some genuinely fascistic uh, tendencies about it, they saw a strike in steel as an opportunity. And they more or less provoked the strike. And the strike involved uh, what are what were called the little steel companies in comparison to U.S. steel, which was big steel. But these were very big companies, Bethlehem Steel um, and, and Republic Steel, uh, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company, Inland Steel, uh, National Weirton Steel, and uh, Armco were also kind of considered part of this coalition. So they provoked this strike in May. 1937 uh, to blunt CIO organizing in steel. And to make a long story a little bit shorter, um, the companies were led by Republic Steel. And Republic Steel was led by a guy named Tom Girdler, um, who was so aggressive and so practiced in opposing unionization that for a time in the 1930s, Girdlerism was a thing. Uh, that, that denoted this kind of uh, resistance to unions. And so on Sunday, Memorial Day was on a certain day date back then, not on a certain day in the month, a certain date. On Sunday, Memorial Day, 1937, um, about 12 or 1,500 people marched on a plant in South Chicago um, to assert their right to picket. Uh, what had happened was that Republic Steels, one of four companies involved in the strike, kept several of its plants open. And the strike was centered in Chicago and in Northeast Ohio and a few other places where mills were struck. But that was, um, those are the main areas. Uh, Republic said, we're going to keep a couple of our plants open. Uh, and we're going to do it to demoralize these strikers. Um, and the way they did that, in part, in Chicago, uh, was by violence. So the, the place this happened was this called the South Chicago Works, uh, Republic Steel South Chicago Works, way on the far south side of the city, the industrial area there. Um, what they did when the workers went out on strike or on the evening of uh, May 26th uh, was to unleash um, company guards and company loyalists, basically toughs and thugs, uh, who prevented the workers from setting up a big picket line at the plant to stop the people who were coming in from the next shift from observing the picket line, from, from turning back and going home. So this set up a situation where the plant was still open with a couple, maybe a couple thousand people inside. And for several days, speaking of police violence, the police prevented any attempt to set up a picket line at the plant. Uh, when workers tried, they beat them. Um, a big crowd a couple of days before the Memorial Day massacre marched on the plant. They were beaten. 
And so again, on this Sunday, Memorial Day, 1937, um, this large crowd marched over to the plant, said, we're gonna set up a picket line here. We're gonna challenge the police. Um, they were met by about 250 members of the Chicago police, all of whom were armed with service revolvers, some of whom were living in the plant and being fed by Republic Steel. Um, a standoff ensued, and in the middle of that standoff, um, a police officer fired a shot probably in the air, and then moments later, uh, a bunch of the other officers fired into the crowd. Mm, um, mm, and and that was, that constituted the beginning of the massacre. Well, they weren't done yet. Um, they kept shooting for a while amidst this chaos, and then waited out among the people who were shot down and falling and fleeing and beat them. Uh, beat them severely, and then arrested a whole bunch of them and charged them later that day with um, conspiracy uh, to commit an unlawful act. They probably were going to charge them with murder, uh, even though nobody from the Union side shot anybody that day. A um, couple cops had minor injuries, but almost all the injuries were on the labor side. So I'm sorry for that long description, but that's that's basically what happened uh, that day. And four men died that day, six over the next few days and weeks. Um, and within about six weeks, the strike had been broken. Wow, thanks a really graphic description. That's uh, Professor Ahmed White. He's professor of law at the University of uh, Colorado Boulder. He's author of The Last Great Strike, Little Steel, The CIO and the Struggle for Labor Rights in New Deal America. We're also talking with Will Attig. He's executive director of Union Veterans Council of the AFL-CIO. Uh, Will, I I think before I told you about just before the show, I think you weren't familiar with this. So I just sort of want to get your reaction as a labor guy, as a, you know, a, a vet yourself, just your reaction, comments. Yeah. So actually, I, I know a little bit about this. It was one of those things that just you have to go through your Rolodex a little bit to remember every one of these. But for me, um, there's a lot of threads that make a lot of sense. You hear there was a, a, a whole system of union busting that was that was used. Um, I, I like to look at history and look at what's happening today and think about what happened in the past. And usually it's just different tactics, the, the violence or the different ways we have to do our tactics too, whether it's us picketing out of mine in um, Alabama and facing down what happens today. But one of the things that really struck me is, is there's something that people don't really talk about too much is that you know, when, when we think about today, there's a there's an extreme aggressive push to get um, veterans of the Iraq Afghanistan war into our extremist groups. Um, January 6th, um, things like that. It's a it's a conservative effort. Um, following World War II, we had just as many problems. We had even higher rates. We, we had tons of uh, PTSD, undiagnosed PTSD, shell shock, etc. But the, rea but the reality of it is that we had these giant populations of veterans that we didn't really talk about. And those folks were preyed on for use of violence, whether it was in union busting or, or different other different aspects. Um, and it's something that people don't really talk about, that a lot of those union busters were really down and out veterans from World War I um, throughout, throughout many of those struggles uh, following World War I. Just, just one of those things that people don't really know too much about. I think that's a really good point, Will, and I wanted to ask you about that, Professor White, because it, it occurred to me just, you know, reading your piece and some other stuff on the Memorial Day Massacre that, 
and you may know this, but it seems quite likely, as, as I think Will is pointing out, that, that folks, you know, both in the police and the guards and probably in the workers themselves were World War I vets, right? Oh, oh yes. And, you know, this, this, this align with the fact that in, um, in, in the years just following the end of the First World War, one of the major agents of anti-union repression was the American Legion. Uh, which was responsible for um, a number of acts of, of vigilantism and violence against uh, against especially left-wing union people, but uh, the industrial workers of the world, um, to some extent communist-connected uh, union organizers. That's not to paint all uh, uh, legionnaires with the same brush, but, but, but the history is very clear that the legionnaires played um, a, a, a crucial role in labor repression. Uh, in that period, there's, there's no doubt about uh, no doubt about that, and the National Guard played a key role in strike breaking in the early 20th century, including a little steel strike. Uh, the strike was broken in Ohio by uh, the Ohio National Guard, uh, which was called out in the guise of of preventing violence. Uh, but one of the ironies, one of the one of the one of the persistent ironies of labor relations or paradoxes of labor relations is that when workers are provoked to violence in the course of strikes, that violence is then used as a ground for breaking the strike. Uh, and so you can't win for losing. Um, you either endure the violence and not respond, uh, or you respond to the violence and that becomes a pretext for breaking the strike. And that's what happened in Northeast Ohio, um, where again, the National Guard was called out uh, by a New Deal governor who said, you know, who pretended to side with labor, and uh, and that was the end of the strike in in Ohio. So we just got a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to, to take this in a little bit of a different direction, although I don't think it's really that different. But one of the things, uh, again, in in reading this was. You know, as you so vividly described, Professor White, I mean, it was the cops who who shot down the striking workers, uh, beat them. Uh, the interesting thing that jumped out at me and that resonated, you know, today was that they then basically tried to, you know, deny it. They said it didn't happen. They said it was other than what it looked like. Um, you know, this was 85 years ago, you know, uh, kind of fake news kind of a situation. But it also resonated for me, you know, that until people started having cell phones that they record this stuff, you know, how many times did we read about, you know, black folk getting shot by cops who supposedly had guns or whatever. And, and even now you still, until they, you know, until we force them to release the video that that shows up. So that resonated for me um, as well, you know, where, where we're told, you know, don't, you know, who are you going to believe, you know, you, you, you know, you're lion eyes or what. So let me, let me just uh, get a quick reaction from you, Professor White, and then I'm going to go back to Will. If that, sure, see if that resonates. Uh that that's that's that that's exactly it. i mean that's entirely apt in in this situation what happened was um in the wake of the the the, the killing the massacre uh the police and the big newspapers and and most of the big politicians said this was the workers fault they they were they were driven by uh to their deaths by a bunch of irresponsible communists and marijuana smoking folks and all of that um, and then it turned out, just by happenstance, that a guy named Orlando Lippert, who was uh, a newsreel photographer for Paramount, had been sent to the Indy 500. And then they recalled him, said, no, go to South Chicago, and there's going to be a 
there's maybe some trouble down there. He recorded this on um, on a film camera, and you can find this online in various places today. And what happened was this footage surfaced, and it gradually it didn't happen overnight, but gradually, gradually, because of con some congressional investigation, the work of union people and union friendly people, the narrative changed. Um, it didn't change entirely or 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 or, or absolutely or universally, but it changed enough. Um, that that the workers avoided being prosecuted for murder. Uh, had it not been for that video, there's a very good chance that, as in other labor disputes, Homestead, um, Haymarket, rather, for instance, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they would have uh, been prosecuted for homicide or, or if not murder, um, if not murder charges. I've, I've seen that footage. It is blood curdling. Uh, Will, last thoughts? Um. If there was only this thing that we had that we could look back at and, and try and assess what we're doing today, right? Um, I think that I always like getting to hear a little bit about history because, I mean, a video in 1937 was able to fix a problem that happened that would have been just swept underneath the rug, just like what's happening today in earnest, which, I mean, that's just kind of a little bit of a, you know, we know, you know, the lessons are there for us. We just need to look them, look, look, seek them out. And I think we need to put a little bit more of an emphasis on our history as a country, you know, and maybe not ban so many books and put, put more education into schools. So, um, yeah, more, more books, less guns. Is that a way here? I think that's a great idea. I think it's a great way to end it for me. Hey, give a, give folks your website. Will, if you would. Yeah, it's uh, unionveterans.org, and I, I want to just really fast, uh, it, Memorial Day is on Monday. Uh, there's a lot of parents of veterans that died in, in service. There's a lot of friends of veterans that died in service. There's kids now of veterans that have died in, in this last war. So uh, just just think, take a moment that day to think about it and, and celebrate their lives. That's what that's what they decided to do. So, Will Attig, Executive Director of the AFL-CIO's Union Veterans Council, also with us, Ahmed White. He's Professor of Law at the University of Colorado Boulder and the author of The Last Great Strike, Little Steel, the CIO, and the Struggle for Labor Rights in New Deal America. Thank you both so much uh, and uh, look forward to um, keep, keeping, keeping uh, all those folks in our, in our memory and our minds on Memorial Day. Thank you both. Thank you. All right. Up next, uh, and this was Will's suggestion and a great one, as always, the one-man revolution himself, Tom Morello. When we come back, Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large at the American Prospect, he's going to report on a sort of a surprising turn of events. Uh, law and order seem to be coming back to labor relations. You're listening to Your Rights at Work and WPFW 89.3 FM. One, two, three, four.
Indeed. You're listening to your rights to work, Chris Garlock, here for our final segment today. We're joined by Harold Myerson. He's editor at large for the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back to your rights at work. Good to be here, Chris. So before we get into the weeds of labor law, our favorite place to live and breathe, I wanted to thank you for introducing our DC Labor Film Fest screening of How Green Was My Valley, a Tuesday at AFI Silver. And I thought I'd give you a chance to share with folks some of your thoughts about that uh, 1941 uh, John Ford classic. Well, uh, it's it's uh, really quite a wonderful and ultimately tear-jerking uh, movie. Uh, a lot of it is about uh, efforts of Welsh coal miners uh, to unionize, uh, and it's depicted against uh, a setting of really kind of the gradual end of of their world and the disruption of their family. Uh, they are priced out of the market. Uh, wages kept getting keep getting slashed. Uh, they go on strike. Uh, they win some gains, but uh, in the course of the movie, which runs over a, a time period of several years, uh, you know, it, it's kind of in a way the West Virginia story. Uh, uh, you know, the, the the green hills turn to gray slag. The uh, the air is fouled. Uh, all the sons in the family, except the youngest boy, who is sort of the uh, provides the the lens through which the story is. Uh, is grasped and is is played for the first time in a movie uh, ever by a, a very young Roddy McDowell. Uh, the adult sons have to scatter. The father eventually is killed in a mine disaster. Uh, it it's it's a really you know it, it's really quite a gripping movie. And uh, the studio head at Fox, Daryl Zanuck, a lifelong Republican. Uh, was was wary of it because of the union angle. The screenwriter Philip Dunn. Uh, was a member of the, of the uh, Screenwriters Guild. John Ford, who was usually associated with John Wayne and right-wing politics, was in the 1930s actually quite left. He was one of the 12 founders of the Screen Directors Guild. 
He belonged to the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, perhaps most surprising given the religiosity of a number of Ford's later movies in particular. He, he donated uh, a large sum of money to the uh, Spanish loyalists fighting uh, Franco, uh, for which they, from which they purchased an ambulance. Uh, so uh, he was actually quite left at the time as well and uh, really produced just a, uh, a, a beautiful movie. And Ford kind of specialized, uh, as in The Grapes of Wrath, he made the year previous, in movies about the disintegration of social order, of the breakup of families uh, caused by uh, capitalist ec economics and war and what have you. Uh, and, and this movie certainly is in that genre. So in the previous segment, we were just talking about the Memorial Day Massacre of 1937. And it occurs to me, and I, I hadn't actually connected this, so just now listening to you talk about that, but... So 41, you know, that, not only that, but, the, you know, there was a lot of attacks, you know, uh, beatings and, and shootings, you know, in, in the late 30s, um, you know, as the CIO was organizing. And it occurs to me that folks who were watching this 41, you know, 1941 film, this would have been in their minds, right? Yes, uh, it, it, it is. But what's even more remarkable is you look at the movie now and, you know, the uh, destruction of the environment, the deindustrialization of the valley, uh, it's in our minds now. It, it, you know, so much of the movie, uh, for all that it's, you know, set in a kind of quaint, remote Welsh setting, so much of the movie is actually, I think, resonates with uh, the kinds of things we're, we're putting up with today, including, including as the valley... Uh, which was how green as the valley <laughs> deteriorates economically and environmentally, it also deteriorates into a kind of cultural meanness. Uh, uh, the, the, the sort of right-wing fundamentalist uh, of villagers, the, those of them who are kind of surge to the fore, which is another one of the calamities depicted. And again, clearly resonates with what's going on in America today. So the saddest thing to say about the movie is in many ways how prophetic uh, it turned out to be. Fascinating. Well, it's one of the reasons that, you know, we do the DC Labor Film Festival because, you know, it's history is not even past, right, Harold? Right, <laughs> right. As, 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 as Mr. Faulkner uh, memorably wrote. Yes. Exactly. Thank you. Somebody gets me. Somebody gets me. All right. <laughs> Back into the labor law weeds, you did a terrific column a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to to have you on to explain it. It seems like something uh, unusual is happening over at the uh, the NLRB or the National Labor Relations Board. What, what what's going on? Well, the immediate uh, event that I was writing about in that particular piece was, uh, you know, something that actually has always been happening. Uh, uh, and inadequately responded to for about the last 60 years or so. Uh, seven workers who were trying to unionize a Starbucks in Memphis, Tennessee, um, were, were fired, uh, which is clearly a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. But historically, what happens when something like this uh, occurs is they, you know, they take the case before the local NLRB uh, they uh, consider it, uh, uh, you know, rule for a settlement about restoring the workers to their jobs. The company appeals up the NLRB ladder, then eventually goes to court. And 
The, the problem is like there are no, uh, um, two problems. One, there's no serious penalty. You just have to pay the workers back pay uh, unless the worker has been, uh, you know, has gotten a job somewhere else. So then you subtract that from the back pay you would owe that worker. The second problem is this takes forever. Uh, it takes months. It takes years often. And at the end of it, you know, all, all the employers required to do is to post a notice somewhere in the workplace that, uh, uh, you know, they violated the law and they've made back pay settlements. Uh, but it kills the unionization drive. Now, the current general counsel of the NLRB, who was arguably, I think, the most pro-worker appointment uh, in the federal government, uh, at least since the 1930s, if not ever, uh, Jennifer Abruzzo, is more cognizant of the time element uh, than any of her predecessors. And so her recommendation in a memo to staff was when you see the National Labor Relations Act violated, you should immediately go to court and get an injunction, in this case, restoring the workers to their jobs, still in the middle of an organizing campaign, uh, which could actually then have some effect on uh, on the campaign. And, you know, as I concluded in the piece, people who hate unions could say, oh, this shows a pro-union bias. I choose to think of it as simply uh, a law and order approach to uh, uh, federal law. Uh, you know, only it's it's understanding, um, you know, the uh, in, in kind of the, an Einsteinian revelation, the dimension of time uh, uh, that, <laughs> that this has to be you know, that the promptness of the remedy is uh, equally important along with the remedy itself. So I want to delve into this a bit because I think a couple of things. So um, there's this huge, huge organizing drive going on, you know, all kinds of things happening as you, you've written about, we've covered sure. on this show, you know, yeah. Amazon, Starbucks. I mean, yeah. and, and what's been fascinating about it is that a lot of this is just bubbling. It, it reminds me a lot, to be honest, of the thirties where people just started yeah. striking and walking out. Right. You know, Chris, we just got a proposal in, I by email to the magazine about 20 minutes ago about what looks like to be a pending strike at the Philadelphia museum of art. Oh, really? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> stuff is just bubbling. And a lot of it is generational. I mean, you know, the millennial Gen Z generation is the most pro-union generation, according to the polling ever. And, you know, they're not willing to take the, the kind of uh, crap, technical term, uh, <laughs> that, you know, a great many American workers are compelled to take as a condition of employment. So, so here's the fascinating sort of intersecting lines that I'm seeing, and I want you to sort of talk about this. One is you've got these Gen Z folks, these, these young folks that are just like, screw labor laws, screw the employers. We're walking out. We're, you know, we're organizing. We're just doing this. We're not even necessarily going to talk to a regular union. You know, we're, we're just doing stuff, right? right. So there's, that's, that's just happening, right? And then you have the, the National Labor Relations Board, which I'm trying to be charitable and, and nice here but i mean you know as slow as molasses in january is the thing that occurs to me i mean like you say i mean i mean me growing up usually you know friends of mine would would, would win their cases after five years and they'd get a check for you know whatever um as you say minus you know the money that they made after they got because they weren't going to wait or there's no point waiting around to get your job back because that could yeah. be years right and and you're saying that the nlrb is now saying we're going to actually put you back to work, you know, I, I'm assuming 
what kind of time frame are we talking about here? Well, when you get a 10J injunction, uh, it's pretty much immediate. Uh, so, uh, you know, this, is, this, this marks a, a huge change, and, it, and it's just one of a whole series of changes uh, that uh, uh, Ms. Abruzzo in particular uh, has uh, sort of told all of the 500 NLRB attorneys around the country uh, to, to implement, um, you know, uh, saying, un, you know, an unfair labor practice, go to a court, get an injunction. Um, and she's, I think, in the most uh, kind of just jaw-dropping memo, which was the first memo she wrote on the job, <coughs> excuse me, just two weeks after she was confirmed by the Senate in, in the summer of last year, saying uh, we should go back to um, a, a remedy that was put in place by Harry Truman's NLRB, but which sort of was, you know, fell between the cracks about 20 years later. And that remedy uh, was uh, when a majority of workers uh, through signing cards uh, favor a union and the company isn't bargaining, you just certify the union and order that company to begin bargaining. That was this decision from the Truman Board in 1949, I think, which is one labor law professor I spoke to about this said, everyone's forgotten about this. You know, Jennifer Brooks is the only person who remembered that this used to be the policy of the National Labor Relations Act. But wait, but you have to explain what, what normally happens. I mean, when, when, so the, the normal process, which again, is a really drawn out process, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the normal process uh, would uh, simply require the company uh, in its own sweet time to hold an election, which the company could, you know, uh, intervene in and do uh, other things which Jennifer Brutus said violate the law, including having what is called a captive audience meeting, which is subjecting employees, whether they want to be there or not, to uh, the company's anti-union propaganda. Uh, that was the remedy since the late 60s, and, and it's been noted that when that remedy superseded this earlier Truman-era doctrine, which was called the Joyce Silk Mills decision, when, when it superseded that, the number of unfair labor practices immediately skyrocketed, uh, you know, uh, so it, it, clearly, it clearly had a major effect. You know, everyone had forgotten, except one obscure, like, uh, labor academic about Joyce Silk Mills and Jennifer Abruzzo, who happens to be the new general counsel of the NLRB. So you're right, Chris, it's, it's a confluence of two interesting phenomena, I mean, very hopeful phenomena, uh, the, the rising of uh, millennial and, uh, to the extent that they're in the workforce, Gen Z workers on the one hand, and the National Labor Relations Board, which is deadly serious now about what I referred to as a law and order approach to the National Labor Relations Act. If the employee violates it, wham, they should actually be real penalties in real time. Employer, employer violation. Employer, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Yes, well, course. so so let me ask you this. Uh, so so you've got Abruzzo and they're doing doing this great work, and then you've got these five hundred attorneys across the countries and a lot of people. What? What I would be worried about, what I am worried about is, is you know, are, are, I mean, that's 500 folks. I don't know any of these folks. I mean, are they going to do that? What's, what's the likelihood of this stuff actually getting carried out down on the ground? Well, so far, we've seen a lot of it carried out, including uh, after she uh, said we should try the theory that uh, uh, misclassification of workers uh, is, 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 you know, not only 
on a state level means you're probably not paying minimum wage. That's not really under the NLRA, NLRB's jurisdiction, but is, a, is an unfair labor practice under the NLRA uh, and, and should be filed. Uh, workers can file uh, that complaint uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the NLRB, uh, and that's being done by regional attorneys uh, for the port truckers in uh, Los Angeles, Long Beach Harbor. Uh, but look, the 500 attorneys around the country, to begin with, if they work for the NLRB, there's almost an inherent, I mean, you wouldn't really do that unless you were concerned about workers' rights in general. Okay. And then they are her employee, you know, she is their boss. Uh, and, and then the final point is, by all accounts, because I did a big profile of her in uh, the uh, uh, last issue of The Prospect, so having spoken to a number of people sort of at different points in the NLRB uh, bureaucracy, they love her. These are basically attorneys who've been frustrated mm-hmm. by the kind of things we've just been talking about and by, you know, uh, how, how do you even represent workers when the NLRB is controlled by Donald Trump's appointees? Uh, so they've been, you know, they've been frustrated. I remember, you know, one, one of the people, one of the underlings, I spoke to said it's such a great thing to have a general counsel who has your back and who also really understands the uh, the labor law, you know, um, at a level of expertise, which is almost unheard of, which has to be the case. If you remember Joy Silk Mills, I, I, you know, as I said, a professor at the uh, Berkeley uh, Law School was saying no one remembered Joy Silk Mills. <laughs> Fortunately, the new general counsel, the NLRB did. So, so here's another question then, which is, um, what, uh, what, what, what are the, what are the bosses doing about this? I mean, there's a new cop, literally a new cop on the beat, like enforcing the law, and they've been used to, you know, getting a, you know, sort of going through the the stop signs with with impunity, and now all of a sudden they're getting pulled over and ticketed. Well, you know what they're going to do eventually. It hasn't reached this stage yet, but what they will do eventually is, uh, you know, go to court and, and say, that, you know, this, this ruling is wrong, these doctrines are wrong, the law shouldn't be enforced this way. And, of course, that is a real problem, given the Republican domination of courts. But none of this has really reached that stage yet. And that usually, for all of the reasons we were talking about, about the delay inherent mm-hmm. in all of this, well, that delay often cuts, uh, you know, in this case, would cut against the employers, Uh uh, as again, one one <laughs> one other law professor said to me, "Look, they're uh, too busy repealing Roe at the Supreme Court to be dealing with this now, and you know this stuff w- will take a while to work up that that particular food chain." Now, you know what all of this suggests is that labor had better establish, you know, facts on the ground and do its organizing ASAP because once they're in place they're a lot harder to dislodge than if it's still a fledgling effort and Mr. Alito and his buddies uh, say you can't do that. Uh, so, you know, getting back to my original point, the element of time is really important here. And, uh, you know, the kind of insurgency we're, we're really seeing uh, among uh, whole groups of workers and a whole generation of workers really needs, you know, to become uh, even more widespread, really needs to uh, scale up. 
So last question before we wrap, uh, we've talked before about the pro act, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, our, our buddy, you know, Jenny diamond and the folks at Nova labor are on week, you know, 1003 or something. I don't know. I think it's like 57. Anyway, every week they've been out there trying to get, uh, Virginia, you know, Virginia Senator, uh, on board on this pro act, um, which still, still seems to be dead in the water, but I'm wondering, you know, how does, I don't know if I want to say does that matter, but if we've got an NLRB that's actually doing its job, I'm not saying it's either or. Obviously, we'd like to have both, Harold. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're right. The PRO Act can certainly do things that would have uh, a legal, at least a somewhat more friendly reception in the court than perhaps some of the administrative decisions of, of the NLRB. But by the same token, when I said no one remembered Joyce Silk Mills, there are things that Abruzzo are doing rooted in the history of labor law that are not in the PRO Act because no one remembered you know, <laughs> uh, what, what, what was there. As a, a former union and international union president said to me, um, you know, Abruzzo was pushing an agenda that is beyond what the union presidents who had input into the PRO Act could think of. So, you know, you want both. You want both. Got it. All right. Harold Meyerson, wonderful. Thanks again for doing such a great job bringing us uh, How Green Was My Valley. Look forward to more of those. And thanks, as always, for breaking breaking us down with the labor law and everything else. Uh, Editor-at-large at the American Prospect. Really appreciate it, Harold. Always good to be here, Chris. Take care. You too. That's about going to do it for this week's edition of Your Rights at Work. We'll be back next week. Thanks, as always, to the mighty Michael Nacella on the boards. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. Have a good weekend. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>